Some of you are going to think I'm a crackpot junkie after 30 minutes from now. Who's ever felt like they're not good enough? It is so common. We'll all agree in this room that it's those broken moments that give us the opportunity to go within. I was smoking, I was drinking, and then I fell in love, which was so inconvenient at the time. Probably for the first 30 plus years of my life, I was really scared of the truth. The thing about truth is, it's bullshit. <laughs> Nobody gets through life unscathed. We all look at that as if our life is screwed up, that that is actually an opportunity for us to grow and expand. In 2019, the Wellness Base Camp returns. In Fremantle, Newcastle, and our first ever international adventure in Auckland. Two for one tickets are under 100 bucks. Get them before they run out at thewellnessbasecamp.com. This edition of 100 Not Out proudly brought to you by the 2019 Greek Island Longevity Experience in Ikaria. Join Damien Christoph and myself for 10 days on the island where people forget to die. Live with the locals, drink the wine, eat the food and discover the longevity lifestyle with a select group of like-minded people just like you who will become friends for life. Activities include stunning hikes, cooking classes, essential oil workshops, festivals and dancing, grape stomping and wine harvesting, village hopping, beach days on the Aegean Sea, farming and foraging with the locals and so much more. For dates, details, highlights of previous events and to apply, go to 100notout.com. Group size limited to 16 and applications processed on a first-in, first-served basis. TheWellnessCouch.com streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to 100 Not Out, featuring your hosts, Dr. Damien Christoph and Marcus Pierce. Welcome to 100 Not Out, a weekly show dedicated to helping you master the art of aging well. Marcus Pierce here with you and I am flying solo this week on the podcast because the great Damien Christoph was on a plane when this interview was conducted. Now, there are certain guests on 100 Not Out that we as hosts and no doubt you as listeners have been really impacted by the kind of people and the kind of interviews that you will remember forever and I have no doubt that our guest today is one of those people. My introduction to Dr. Sanduk Ruit was completely by chance or divine intervention, depending on your beliefs, when I was returning a book to my local library. Now, this book called The Barefoot Surgeon caught my eye and I thought, you know what? I'm going to get that book. I'm going to read that book. I love autobiographies. This is a biography uh, by Ali Gripper and it just caught me and I was looking at it thinking, I definitely want to read that book. And within about 48 hours, the book was complete. I consumed everything I could on Dr. Ruit on YouTube, and I just knew I had to get him on the podcast. The book in itself, I highly recommend it. If you love to read, it is such a page turner, The Barefoot Surgeon by Ali Gripper on Dr. Ruit. Now, Dr. Ruit is one of the uh, the world's leading surgeons in cataract surgery. He's restored sight, just the mind boggles here, to over 120,000, that is 120,000 human beings with his own hands. But that is not the major reason why I wanted to interview Dr. Ruit. It is the challenges he has faced in order to get to that point, which truly make him a leading example of the 100 Not Out message and lifestyle. The reason is because he has experienced the heartaches of siblings dying, the crises of financial lack. He's been ostracized from family, from friends, from colleagues, and he's been tested on almost every single level that you can imagine. In part one of this special two-part series on a true living legend, 100 Not Out presents to you Dr. Sanduk Ruit. 
Hollywood actor Richard Gere calls him one of the world's greatest living humanitarians. The late Fred Hollows described him as a soulmate. Fellow eye surgeons have called him the Steve Jobs of ophthalmology. And the people of Nepal simply call him the God of Sight. The book by Australian journalist Ali Gripper profiling his life is called The Barefoot Surgeon. Whatever label bestowed upon Nepal's first ever ophthalmologist, words only go so far in portraying the remarkable impact Dr. Sanduk Ruit has had and continues to have on humanity. He has personally restored sight to over 120,000 human beings. For our Australian listeners, I want you to imagine a Melbourne cricket ground full of blind people with 20,000 more waiting in line, all to be personally operated on by one man. It's no surprise that such efforts have led to accolades including Asia's version of the Nobel Peace Prize, the Raymond Magsaysay Award, Asian of the Year, and I'm so happy to say an Honorary Order of Australia for services to humanity. But Sandit Ruud's life has been far from smooth sailing. In fact, having recently read and then reread The Barefoot Surgeon, it is fair to say Dr. Sandit Ruud has lived one of the more harrowing lives that I have come across, much of which we'll cover in this interview. To get to know and learn more about one of the world's true living legends, it is a very humbling and warm welcome to Dr. Sandit Ruud, who joins us from Kathmandu in Nepal. Dr. Ruud, welcome to 100 Not Out. Uh, thank you very much, Marcus, for having me in your show. It's such a pleasure and, as I said, a real honour to have you on the program. I think, as I said in the introduction, your achievements and accolades, which I've only mentioned a few of just, just now, give the impression that your life has been one of pure joy and full of success. But, of course, every lens does have two sides. Can you share with us your humble beginnings and, and some of the heartache uh, you experienced growing up? Oh, Marcus, uh, uh, I was, uh, you know, I was born up in the extreme northeast part of Nepal, uh, at the foothills of Mount Kanchenjunga. Uh, and, I, uh, you know, I still have difficulty in uh, sort of uh, getting the reality that I was really born there. And it's up in the mountains, very remote, about 10,000 plus feet uh, near a river. And... Uh, uh, the thing I can understand is uh, freezing cold during winter and no schools and uh, just isolated from the whole world. And very, you know, that's where I was born uh, in 1954. And you grew up in, you know, as, as a Westerner, we really couldn't even comprehend, I suppose, the surroundings, but the, the lack of resources as well. But my understanding is you're a very curious child um, and that you, you did have some painful experiences. In reading The Barefoot Surgeon, I identified three really painful experiences um, and I know there were many more, but many people are quick to label painful experiences as, as bad experiences, but I think, and, and I'd really love to find out from you, if you're if your uh, quote-unquote painful experiences have been ultimate blessings in disguise. Um, the first one I identified, which, which many would argue is on the lower end, but you broke your arm as a child. Um, but can you tell the story as to how it actually benefited you as a surgeon? Because I found this really quite fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, my, uh, this, is a, this is a small village of about 200 houses and, uh, uh, and mostly um, uh, people who would do, uh, you know, bar trades with Nepal and Tibet. And my father was one of them. And uh, when I was young, uh, about, I would guess, uh, about five to six years old. Uh, I was trying to, a bit naughty at that time, and got back on the uh, on the back of uh, 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 
Azo, which is a, a sort of a combination of yak and cow, and uh, and my friends sort of chasing me from chasing the zoo, which is an animal uh, between yak and uh, cow, and chasing me along the gutter. And somehow they twisted the tail, and I fell on one side. And uh, uh, so, you know, when I fell on the right, I, I somehow, uh, later I came to know that my right arm had been broken down, had, bro had broken, and my father, took me to the monastery. And those days, uh, of course, you know, when the monks were the supreme body, so they would uh, probably know everything. Uh, that's what that was the understanding was. He tried to do some splints and things like that. But uh, being a naughty boy, uh, uh, I refused to sort of stay uh, under the splint of my right hand and I started forcefully, um, I started to move my left hand uh, you know, we had walnut trees and some apricots, and uh, we were always busy throwing stones at the uh, fruits. So I started moving my left hand, and uh, and slowly uh, I started becoming an ambidextrous, and uh, which is great, which has really been looking back, has been a great gift for me to use both right and left hand, uh, Marcus. Absolutely. It's, it's phenomenal, isn't it, how, how these experiences often do end up uh, yeah. being a wonderful um, addition to our lives. The second what I identified painful childhood experience is around your schooling. Now, the village you grew up in had no school, uh, but your yep. family observed that you were a very curious child. And um, from my understanding, your father and your grandfather uh, simply decided that you had to, under any circumstances, get an education. Now, any circumstances for many of us... Uh, when we talk about this, we're talking a 15-day walk to for you to get to school, uh, which was in Darjeeling, and then you stayed at that school for three consecutive years, given the distance between the school and your family home, all at a very young age. I can only imagine what that does for someone's resilience. Can you give us an insight as to how, how that developed you at such a young age? Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, you know it's been uh, sort of a great experience, and uh, uh, I would I was uh, at that time a little more than seven years old, and uh, uh, my father and uh, like you said, my father had a foresight to put me in some education, uh, and uh, that was the closest place we could uh, get to. And uh, once I was put in the school there, uh, uh, then uh, uh, you know we had holidays, uh, shorter holidays during the, uh, during shorter, vac and then there was longer vacations during the winter when it was very cold. And, uh, and those vacations were uh, about a month, uh, and everybody used to go, uh, you know, their parents used to come to the hostel and take them home, and uh, twice a year, of course. And I, uh, uh, I actually, the first year I really waited for my father to come and nobody came. So I was a bit, uh, you know, desperate. And uh, luckily, the warden and the, and the, uh, uh, of the hostel, uh, uh, Father Mickey, uh, had been a great uh, sort of teacher and a great you know, friend to me. Uh, and uh, he started counseling me. And, uh, uh, but, but to, to have that feeling, uh, of, uh, you know, as a child, uh, of not being uh, part of the uh, part of the holidays like other students have is ex extremely painful. 
And this pain added uh, uh, added on the second year. And by the time it was third year, I started uh, sort of uh, taking for granted that uh, I'm different from other children and I have to face this in my life. And, uh, you know, I have to make myself very strong to feel this. So I started uh, I started developing this uh, uh, this resistance and immunity, you know, uh, that uh, that I would probably believe that uh, really strengthened uh, me to face um, hardships in life later on, Marcus. Yeah, it's a fascinating discussion because you know there's a a conversation to be had around how um, optimism and vision is really uh, kind of uh, created, and most of the time when you look at it, there's normally a, a significant challenge that someone experiences, which then creates a level of resilience, which clearly you did, yes. which then creates some form of optimism or or big idea um, around yeah. what it is that you want to create. So it's just, a, again, I, I highly recommend people to read the book to really just see the nitty-gritty of what you experienced to really go through that. But it also raises the the opportunity for mentors, as you said, with the, the Jesuit um, Father Mackey as well. But I think the third one, and this is the one where my my heart, and I'm sure every reader that came across it really did ache for you, and that was the passing of uh, your sister, Yangla. Um, as I said, my heart absolutely yes. ached for for you and your family, and no doubt um, many decades on it is still a painful memory. Um, but would you be kind enough to share what happened with our listeners and, and how Yangla's death led you to crystallize your mission in life? Because personally, I find it absolutely fascinating what impact her death had on you. Yeah. Um, uh, Yangla was uh, about uh, uh, two years uh, younger to me and uh, uh, and, uh, you know, as I was uh, continuing my education uh, in uh, uh, after finishing in Darjeeling, I was continuing my education in uh, in, uh, in Kathmandu, Nepal. She, uh, uh, she accompanied me uh, to, you know, to be uh, in a school in Kathmandu, too. And we were, uh, you know, uh, besides being brother and sister, we were. Uh, great soulmates and uh, you know it was interesting that we could share uh, uh, about life and uh, feelings uh, for a long long uh, uh, time and uh, and I, I, I was staying uh, during my college studies in Kathmandu I was staying in a one room uh, you know we were staying in a one room uh, and a kitchen and I used to sort of uh, she used to make tea in the morning and uh, uh, I used to go for a little bit of shopping to buy a few things, and uh, then uh, we could come and she would make food for me. And both of us, you know, she used to go to school, and I used to go to college. And uh, during the back, during the uh, weekends, you know, we could probably take a stroll. And uh, she was a lovely singer, and I used to listen to her singing. When I had my exams, she would really look after me, give me tea in the early in the morning. We were great, uh, you know, sort of, uh, there's a lot of affection between uh, her and me. It was beyond uh, um, the brother-sister affection. And I felt, uh, uh, you know, especially uh, after all that went through with my schooling in, in Darjeeling, all the vacuum that I understood, uh, the, 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 uh, the vacuum of uh, not having uh, any relative close to me uh, in the school, and that was filled by my sister uh, and with her love. And uh, 
suddenly what happened was she started losing little weight uh, in Kathmandu and uh, uh, then uh, uh, we were curious and uh, we took her to a few uh, physicians and uh, finally she was diagnosed as uh, having uh, tuberculosis of the lung and uh, those days you know I'm talking um, uh, about uh, say in uh, uh, the late 60s uh, the tuberculosis of lungs was uh, not a small thing it was a big thing and uh, so she was put on uh, and then I called my father and she was put on uh, um, some uh, injections and tablets and uh, uh, for three or four months started responding a little bit and uh, um, after a year she started getting worse and uh, we took her to the doctor and uh, the doctor said uh, that she wouldn't, uh, uh, she wouldn't um, um, respond to the primary line of drugs you would probably assist into the medicine and uh, then they uh, offered us uh, some new uh, medicines which were beyond our capacity to afford and uh, so, uh, so the doctor said uh, it's, it's best that you put her in a sanatorium so we put her in a sanatorium and uh, she continued to lose her weight and uh, then the, finally the doctor said it's best that you took you keep her at home now so then my father took her to our village uh, where my parents had migrated from my uh, my uh, you know real village up in the hills they had migrated down yeah. a little bit and uh, she stayed there my father had a small store and she was looking after the store so the last time i went and saw her uh, was uh, uh, she was uh, right at the front of the store very thin and uh, looking a bit dark and i visited her and i spent about a week uh, there during my holidays and uh, the last uh, you know before we parted she said uh, no, brother I'm not sure uh, I'm going to see you or not but make sure you continue your study very hard and, uh, something that I feel you are good in your studies and uh, you must uh, you know make sure that you uh, show uh, the world uh, that uh, you can do something for other people Anyway, we, I went back and uh, after a month, uh, we got the news that she passed away. And uh, uh, that was a very sad uh, moment. And uh, I felt uh, uh, terribly uh, sort of uh, uh, siphoned and empty uh, inside me that one of my closest and heartiest friend and relative and uh, whoever I had to lean uh, for my difficulties uh, was not with me so uh, and then uh, the next one week I started thinking a lot and uh, you know I started and I said why a person like her die because of pro lack of proper medical care uh, in a country like Nepal and there must be hundreds and thousands of people like her who would have similar situation and uh, that really sort of pushed me I said this is probably the branch of that uh, the the profession that I should uh, I should get myself into, and that was an inspiration and a, a sort of a determination that I took uh, from uh, that day that I'm going to try everything to get into medicine, and uh, and I was successful to get into medicine, 
and that's how I got, uh, you know, the inspiration and uh, determination uh, from uh, the passing away of my sister, Marcus. It's, as I said, it's heart-wrenching and absolutely um, inspiring all at the same time. And, you know, for the listeners that aren't aware, it wasn't, it wasn't just Youngler that had passed away. By the time you were 19, you'd, you'd already lost half of your family, three siblings, had had passed yes. away and and as you say in the book it's it's 25 to 30 percent mortality rate when you were growing up but that doesn't make grief any easier to deal with um given the fact yeah. that you know youngler was your best friend and your sister and yeah. and the rest of it but i wouldn't mind just and again it might seem a politically incorrect question to ask but i'd, I'd be fascinated in your answer and this is the, the whole conversation around fate or destiny because i know it's easy to look back on this decades after the fact but You've got three events in your life that seem to they, they they join the dots somewhat incredibly. And personally, I think it's fair to say you wouldn't have become a doctor if you didn't lose your sister to TB. I think it's also fair to conclude that given the limitations of, of village life and, and your lack of resources growing up, you would possibly have become a salt trader like your dad if your family didn't decide to stick their neck out and send you to school, albeit a 15-day trek away. And third, and again, I'm no ophthalmic guru, but given the gift of ambidexterity at such a young age, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's possible to, to conclude that um, it's been a major gift in allowing you to be one of the best technical you know, eye surgeons on, on the planet. Now, do you reflect on events in, 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 a, in a similar way to me here or am I out on a limb? But do you look at it in a similar way or, or not? Marcus, uh, you know, it's interesting. You've... You focus on these aspects that I, uh, I consider them as landmarks in my life, you know, and uh, sometimes uh, I do, um, you know, yeah, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, when I go for uh, once in a while, I go for a short trek uh, up in the mountains. And when I reach at the top of the hill, then you have all the time to yourself. You have emptied yourself and you are so fresh to think about something. And I reflect back and I very often think about these landmarks that you appointed. And, uh, you know, I always say that if these things have not happened, uh, I I would if if, uh, you know, if I had not had such a tough uh, childhood uh, uh, and uh, if my father didn't have a vision to send me to school and if the school I was like a normal kid, I would never have understood how to struggle in life if uh, I, I, I didn't lose my sister and my sister wasn't so close to me. And uh, the the fact that, uh, you know, like you said, uh, I, I, I definitely I think these are the landmarks. And uh, like I like I said, I once in a while I do knock at these when I'm in the in, in a position to uh, to do that. Yeah, I think it's a really, you know, again, and I suppose I say this as a reader reading the book and you're joining all of the chapters of your life together. Um, yeah. it, it looks like a puzzle with, with so many pieces and some of the pieces are really desperate and sad and tragic and others are, are, are absolutely euphoric. And I think with that type of clarity that um, Yangler's death kind of allowed you to create with your professional life, one would then think, okay, well, he goes off and becomes a doctor and then he goes off and does all these things all all inspired and clear. But it doesn't turn out that way, does it? If we if we weave through the story, um, and, and it seems to happen a lot with what I would call masters or exceptionals, you, you had a lot of family resistance to your decision 
to become a doctor. Not unlike, if you look at history, Mozart's dad did not want him to become a composer. Charles Darwin's dad wanted his son to, to work in the church. Um, you know, you look at the family resistance, many exceptional human beings have had to, to deal with. You were really no different, weren't you? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, uh, nobody would have imagined, uh, you know, even my father and mother wouldn't have imagined that I would go and become a doctor. And uh, they would, uh, the best they would, uh, uh, you know, like uh, me to do is to follow on what he was doing and be a successor to his business. And uh, uh, when, I, when, I, when I started telling me this, and then, then they said, you know, maybe it's not a good idea. Maybe it's going to be more difficult, something not good for our society. You know, that's the kind of feeling and uh, thought that I got, really. And and naturally enough, you, you kind of overcame that. You were one of eight scholarship winners out of 150 to, uh, yes. to get to study medicine at King George's Medical University uh, in Lucknow, Northern India. So you become a doctor, yes. which is absolutely phenomenal. You, you come back and you're doing, I suppose we would call it the rounds, um, working out of yeah. Kathmandu, and you end up going back mm-hmm. to your, your home uh, village of, of Walung where you grew up. And yes. there's a four-year-old boy uh, suffering from severe gastroenteritis, and I don't mm-hmm. think it's um, I don't think it's um, hyperbole to say that you saved his life. But the interesting point mm-hmm. at, at this is that you feel almost this presence of your sister Yangla at the time. Can you share that moment with us? Uh, you know, uh, when uh, I, I was a fresh medical graduate, I started working in Kathmandu in a general hospital, and. Uh, uh, and uh, we were, uh, you know, there was a um, uh, announcement from the government to voluntary uh, to voluntarily assign for some work uh, up in the uh, the Nepal-China border uh, to look into the pillars of the boundary, and they needed a medical officer. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I thought it was a great opportunity for me to uh, get back to my village and. Uh, I voluntarily assigned for it, and I was very lucky. And uh, so, for six months, uh, we were up in the uh, almost the, you know, sometimes moving on the no tree zones and uh, up in the mountains, and looking after, uh, you know, sort of uh, caucus of villages and uh, uh, looking after the team. And finally, I landed up uh, in my village, uh, and uh, we were camping there for about 15 days and I thought that was a wonderful moment and uh, I, I had uh, we were camping outside the village uh, in a small flat area my tent and I had a assistant with me and we had a medical supply so I opened up all the medical supplies and I used to offer uh, everybody to come and check get themselves checked and uh, uh, you know, there were two instances that uh, uh, I have a feeling. One was uh, uh, this four-year-old child who had uh, uh, a severe, uh, you know, coincidentally she had a uh, acute gastroenteritis. She was vomiting, and she had all, by the time she was in the camp, she had collapsed. And uh, we immediately looked uh, at her, and uh, I did a little cut down in the leg and, uh, and uh, pushed in some intravenous fluid and. Uh, you know, within uh, within hours, she started coming back uh, after rehydration, and uh, we were able to save uh, the child's life. And there was another instance where an elderly lady uh, had been poisoned uh, 
and uh, uh, we were able to save that uh, that lady's life also. And so I started, you know, look, you know, some, you know, once in a while I started looking uh, uh, looking at uh, uh, the faces of my uh, fellow villagers uh, and saying, you know, is this the place that I really was born? Uh, here I am now, able to serve to them, and uh, you know what happened. So I started saying. Uh, well, uh, everything has happened because my sisters asked me uh, at her, you know, when she was very serious, she asked me to do something uh, good for other people. And I'm following her, uh, you know, her advice. And uh, uh, I just, uh, you know, once in a while, I could very softly thank her. Thank you very much for allowing me to do this. And uh, uh, but that moment, you know, trying to serve my own village up there, uh, was uh, really fantastic, uh, Marcus. You know, it's very great. Yeah, oh, it's it's a phenomenal story. And then, as part yeah. of your rounds, you then uh, asked to join the the ophthalmology department. You end up in the foothills of the Annapurna Range. You know, there's more than 300 yeah. blind people being carried or guided down the slopes to hopefully have their sight restored. And from my understanding, this was your first experience of really what was to come in your life. It would be one of those seminal moments where your mission in life crystallizes further is that would you would you call that that time of your life where you really had an had an epiphany of of what your life was really going to be dedicated to yeah you know every time in uh, in people's life uh, you know sometimes things are not very clear sometimes things are pretty clear you know and uh, it's you know you can't believe sometimes it's so clear and uh, just to let you know that uh, uh, I will, I, I, Destiny uh, brought me together uh, with a senior ophthalmologist, and I was asked to help him as an assistant uh, to go uh, uh, and do surgery uh, for about uh, these these 300 people at the foothills of Anapuna. And uh, uh, he was Dr. Rai, Naveen Rai, uh, very senior and very good surgeon. And uh, so I was very happy to accompany him and. Uh, and then uh, at the, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a small um, setup for operating uh, these, those days, you know, surgery was very primitive. And, uh, and he was operating and I was assisting him. I was assisting with other logistics there. And uh, suddenly I, uh, uh, I sort of came come across uh, about four siblings of the same family who were having uh, congenital cataract and uh, they were operated on the same day and uh, you know towards the end of the day uh, back in my room I started thinking is this the branch of medicine where uh, you can make difference to people's life uh, at such a short time so many people's life so over the next two or three I started quite keenly observing at the systems and uh, how the patients were recovering, how the patients were coming, how they were going back, quite different from how they came in, you know, quite recovered. So I was thinking how such a short medical intervention such at such a short time, you know, makes so much difference in people's life. And uh, then I said, this is, this is exactly the kind of, uh, uh, you know, profession that I would like to uh, enroll to. So I had a I had a fantastically clear, uh, clear sort of a concept that I wanted to get into this profession, Marcus. 
and 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 you make it sound so easy, but let me just educate the listeners on on what you had to do. You found out when when you had this moment of uh, clarity, you found out that the World Health Organization had an ophthalmic postgrad degree scholarship uh, going in India. Yes. But the only catch was yes. more than seventy five thousand students competed for the 70 spots and just to do the maths for yeah. our listeners that is less than a one in 1000 chance of getting in yeah. um, and also yeah. just to educate our listeners the your wage from my understanding was around eight dollars and fifty cents a week as a as a trained medical doctor uh in Kathmandu. Yeah. so it's not as if you yeah. had money in the bank to 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 pay a full fee so you get yeah. one of these 70 spots and for our listeners that that know their their personal growth and I suppose um, new age uh, authorities. Deepak Chopra is one of the more famous graduates of this program. But you get in to um, the All India Institute of Medical Science. You complete your postgrad uh, degree in ophthalmology. Um, you come back really to Nepal on a mission. And I suppose it's wise now that we fast forward somewhat to your your first encounter with a man many Australians are familiar with, and, and that is the great Fred Hollows. Can you um, take us through your your first encounter with Fred and 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 what um, developed from there? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'll, I'll talk to you about that. Uh, I would also like to share uh, with uh, your listeners and uh, you, Marcus. You know that uh, in life, uh, what I've realized is, uh, you know. Uh, you, you need to have right attitude and uh, a lot of hard work and commitment, determination, focus. Uh, but a bit of a destiny is very important. And uh, I was extremely lucky to get into, you know, these two great institutions. Uh, one was King George's Medical College in Lucknow. And the second was in All India Institute of Medical Sciences, where I got the best uh, uh, training for what I was supposed to be doing in the future, you know. Anyway, we, we come back to, uh, you wanted me to talk about how I met Fred, is that right? Yeah, just in, in uh, because I think it's a, it's a wonderful story of a, a lack of ego on both sides, really, but you met him at the airport and you were looking for him and he was looking for you and because he wasn't dressed in a, a suit and tie and all medical-like, he was in like just, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, shorts yeah. and a, a shirt and I think probably is- smoking a pipe. <laughs> yeah. You know, Marcus, this is interesting, uh, and uh, I don't think I may have, or I may not have said said a little bit about uh, uh, some details of meeting him, which is interesting. I want to share with you, Marcus. With, and I'm really, uh, you know, I'm really fascinated by the interest that you show to your listeners. So I'm going to share with you. Anyway, uh, I was I had finished my uh, rounds with the patients in the morning uh, at the eye hospital uh, where I was working, and uh, uh, and. Uh, then I came to have a cup of uh, tea uh, at the World Health Organization office, which was at the annex of the eye hospital. And uh, one of my uh, senior colleagues, who was the chief of the blindness program there, Dr. B.D. Chatot. And uh, so we had a cup of tea. And then Dr. Chatot said, uh, uh, well, um, Rui, do you want to, you know, I'm going to go and pick up uh, some guests from the airport and do you do you have time? You want to come with me? You know. So he asked me whether I want to. I wanted to come with him. Yeah. And uh, so I said, uh, you know, I was uh, those days. Uh, I had no family. I was, uh, you know, fairly easy. And I said, let's go. So we jumped into his car and went to the airport. And you know, I was not supposed to receive them. 
it was he who was supposed to receive uh, them. So I went to the airport with him, and uh, this was uh, the airport uh, nearly, uh, you know, more than 40 years ago in Kathmandu, which is a small sort of a shade and uh, uh, really like a nothing. Shade. <laughs> yeah, the plane would the plane would just land up there, and we could go really <laughs> wow. quite close to the plane, you know. And uh, so we we went, and uh, you know, we, we were supposed to look for an Australian short-term consultant of World Health Organization who was supposed to be coming to look at the trachoma in Nepal, in western part of Nepal. So, you know, we just had the notion that somebody coming for as a short-term WHO consultant would probably come. Those days, it was a fashion to carry a small briefcase in your hand, you know, for executives. So we we were looking at somebody who was fairly you know in suits and uh, with a briefcase in the hand so we started asking uh, to whoever we found was looked a little bit in a little bit like a who consultant and uh, then we found uh, and then we started looking at few people who were australians and uh, well we couldn't we couldn't and then we looked at the chart and suddenly at the corner uh, there was a money changing places and somebody had just coming around and uh, uh, then uh, said, "Oh, are you looking for me?" You know, he said. Uh, then uh, Dr. Chadol said, "I know we're looking for Professor Fred Hollows, and we thought uh, that we wanted to pass him to go to the other people there." But then he said, "I'm Fred Hollows," you know. <laughs> and uh, and we look at him. We look at him, and this is the man uh, in his jackets and boots. Uh, and a little red uh, leather bag uh, hanging and trying to sort of, uh, you know, get on uh, his uh, more uh, uh, tobacco and uh, putting it into his pipe. And said, so I'm, uh, I'm Fred Hollows and I've come to, uh, as a short-term WHO consultant, I mean, he, he didn't fit into uh, the the imagination that we were thinking about, you know, and uh, he... He, he, he had a New Zealand passport. So that's, again, another yes, uh, thing that we... Yes, he grew up know. in New Zealand. So, yeah, yeah. Yep. So he had a New Zealand passport. So, um, you know, we got... <laughs> we, we got and that's how uh, I, came to, I came to meet him, uh, uh, not as a first person, but as a second person to my boss. So you can see how destiny uh, brings it, uh, you know, yeah. Okay, we'll leave the interview there and resume next week on 100 Not Out. Hope you are enjoying this interview as much as I enjoyed uh, researching for it and interviewing Dr. Sandek Ruwit. Now, three steps from this interview so far that you can do between now and next week. First one is go and buy or borrow the book, uh, The Barefoot Surgeon. Um, It is a wonderful book. It is an absolute page turner. I absolutely loved it. And again, you'll knock it over in a couple of sittings. It is one of the more inspirational biographies I've ever read. Congratulations to Ali Gripper on uh, putting that beautiful uh, project together. Three years she spent on and off with Dr. Sandek Ruwit to put The Barefoot Surgeon together. Step two is uh, if you love watching videos, gee whiz, there are some inspiring videos on Dr. Sandek Ruwit's journey in life so far. Many of them are on the Fred Hollows YouTube account. I've put them in the uh, show notes here as well. But again, if you go to YouTube and and, uh, and, and search for Sandok Ruit, 
far out. There are some remarkable stories, um, not just done on a, by the Fred Hollows Foundation, but many uh, news organisations from around the world have uh, really looked into the work of Dr. Sanduk Ruit. Um, and then third is it only costs $25, believe this or not, only costs $25 to restore sight to someone that has preventable blindness, to someone that is blind that can have their sight restored. The numbers are absolutely remarkable. Uh, millions of people around the world are blind that don't have to be blind and it literally only costs $25 to restore their sight. This is largely uh, through the work of Fred Hollows and Dr. Sanduk Ruit uh, to bring the cost of restoring sight down largely through having these intraocular lenses uh, made in Nepal, uh, which now is only $5 a lens versus $150 a lens. So, it's a remarkable story, but it means for people like you and I, where $25 is not much money at all, you can donate and bring sight to someone which just not only uh, improves their life massively, but then frees up the person that is caring uh, for that blind person, allows the community to have another engaged worker, um, brings a lot more prosperity to a family and a community when someone that is blind can see again. So, go to hollows.org. That's the Fred Hollows Foundation website, hollows.org. Donate for as little as $25 and restore sight and make a massive difference in someone's life. All right, love to engage with you. You can go to thewellnesscouch.com and check out uh, all the 100 episodes there. Uh, you can go to facebook.com forward slash 100 not out myself and dr damien christoph is uh marcus d pierce and dr damien christoph over on facebook until next time thanks again for your support look forward to having you for part two of this interview with dr sandal gruitt and may the rest of your life continue to be the best of your life bye for now this has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com check us out on facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.